Well, church, it is good to see you guys again, and this is the first time or first time in a long time. Uh, we started a new series about nine weeks ago on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And so we're going to be continuing in that this morning, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, really picking it up in verse 27 and there on out. So if you have your Bibles want to go ahead and turn there, uh, you can. Like Jeff said a little bit ago, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, lust and adultery. This is what Jesus is going to be addressing here in this passage. Now, uh, for the longest time, when I was a singles pastor back in my day, like this was the issue that brought out all the crowds, right? Uh, this, is the, this is the talk that everybody wanted to know about. Uh, everybody wanted to come and hear, okay, because probably what you're going to see is that what the Bible has to say and what, what, what Jesus has to say uh, on these matters is so counterintuitive to how we think about sex and lust and adultery and things of that matter today. And so it just naturally piques our curiosity. Um, in fact, one of the main reasons, one of the top five reasons uh, that young people are actually leaving the church and resisting the church on the front and even today is largely over our conservative views uh, on, on sexuality and these matters that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, one student wrote in and, and put it like this. She said, uh, sex is just one of the many reasons that I ended up leaving the church. It felt like whenever we talk about sin, it was typically just about sex and it was never seen as anything that was good. Uh, another student wrote in and put what the Bible has to say about sex is not just archaic. It's irrelevant, it's regressive, and it's damaging to many, many people who disagree. Uh, a few weeks back, I was uh, reading an article that was talking about lack of commitment and how uh, people are getting married later and later in life. And this article was making the point that young people today should wait later in life to marry, largely because of this conviction that your 20s are supposed to be a time of experimentation. Right? That's what the article is about. Like, they're like saying, wait, don't get married out of college. Don't do this kind of thing. Like, don't wait. You're going to ruin it. You're going to mess the whole thing up. Like when you graduate school, you need to be graduating. You need to be playing. You need to travel a little bit. You need to have multiple jobs. You need to experiment with partners and figure out what, what you like and things like that. And so they're making the argument you actually should be waiting longer because the 20s are a time that's reserved for your experimentation. Another lady, she was a popular Hollywood therapist. She wrote in and said, sexual liberation is spiritual liberation. They're the same thing. Sex is good for the body, the mind, and the soul. Your soul cannot be free if your body's in chains. If your body's in chains, then your soul cannot be free. They're interconnected. And so I agree that sexual freedom is the most important thing that anyone can pursue. And I'm not kidding you. Like, that article was, a, was an article that kind of went viral a few years back and just hundreds of thousands of likes and thousands of shares and things of that nature. Like, everybody was in agreement. And, and of course, my point is, like, that purity is not even part of the conversation today. Right? It's just not. This is a thing that's laughed about. Uh, you Google it a little bit today, and like one of the, the there's going to be a number of articles at the very front that are all talking about how, how uh, purity should not even be part of the conversation in schools today. Right? It's just archaic. Nobody's going to do it. It's outdated. It's, not, not, it, it's harmful and things of that nature. And, and you and I know this. We, like, we know this. I don't even have to tell you that because you've seen the stats, and you don't even need stats to tell you because you know the conversations that are around us. But like by the, for the average person, by the time they turn 20 years old, 75% of us have already engaged in premarital sex. The number goes up to 95% by the time you're 44 years old and if you're still unmarried. Among women, check this one out. Among women between the ages of 18 and 23 who are currently in a non-married, committed relationship with someone else, 96% of them are engaged in a sexual relationship. In other words, literally no one is waiting anymore. Eight, and the, the reason that's high for women, 18 to 23, 96%, the number's actually lower for men. You want to know why? Because men don't, commit, don't consider sexually, uh, sexual relationships as, as committed relationships. So that number goes down significantly for them. Uh, nearly 80% of men, 55% of women have admitted to intentionally looking at pornography in the past three months. 
64% of young people ages 8, 13 to 24 have actively sought out pornography weekly or more often than that. 22%, oh, meanwhile, okay, porn is, uh, porn is known to increase marital infide infidelity by 300%. So that's not small, right? Right? I, I, that's not like a little blip on the radar. Uh, porn is known to increase the probability of marital infidelity by nearly 300%. 22% of men and 14% of women have confessed to cheating on their spouses and stuff. And of course, the point of the whole matter is, church, like, this is everywhere. You didn't even need the stats or the stories or anything like that to know this. Like, this is normative culturally today. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to go so far beyond that and so, uh, just so bizarre compared to what we think, how we think about this matter today. It's not even going to make any sense. Like Jesus is going to come on and say, like, the way that we think about sex and the way that we think about lust and adultery and all of these different kinds of things is so out of whack, it's not even funny. And the crazy thing about this passage, what Jesus is going to do here is, like, they're not just arbitrary rules that he's throwing in front of your face. And we're going to see that. Like, like, they're not just arbitrary boundaries that he's putting up because he wants to spite you and me, because he doesn't love you, because he doesn't know what brings you joy, because he's completely, you know, he, he doesn't... He's irrelevant. He doesn't know what's going on in your life. Like, he's not doing this to spite you or because he doesn't hate you. He actually knows what brings you joy, and he's actually doing these kinds of things and saying these kinds of things for your good and for his glory at the exact same time. And so that's what I want to jump into this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, again, starting in verse 27, talking about sex and love and adultery and things of these matters. The two questions that I want to ask this morning are, why does Jesus say the things that he says, number one? And then number two, where do you and I turn uh, when we're trying to run and trying to get out there. And I want, you, I want to throw a little warning at you right here, because when we're talking about a matter like this, this is going to hit us in a number of different places. And every single one of us are going to be at different spots along that spectrum of, of how it's actually impacting you. And I want to encourage you, as we talk about this, this issue, would you just say, God, would you give me the capacity to hold in there all the way to the end? Would you, would you give me the capacity to, by your Holy Spirit, listen to what you have to say and to receive it and not run in shame and guilt, knowing that the gospel is never going to leave you in this place of shame? There's always hope, and that is exactly what Christ has come to fulfill in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you indulge this conversation and say, you know what, I'm willing to listen, I'm willing to go there and stuff, knowing that God is going to re redeem and bring hope all the way in the end? That's what he's going to do. So again, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, chapter 5, verse 27. Um, if you remember from this past week, this is one continuous sermon from what we've been doing. We've divided it up quite a bit. This is one continuous sermon for what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching on the side of this mountain to a mixed crowd over there. Um, he's turning essentially the world's value system upside down. He's calling his followers the salt of the, salt of the earth and the light of this world. Uh, at the exact same time that he is raising the bar of morality, everywhere that he goes and it, while he is uh providing the secure foundation from which we can pursue that high bar of morality that high standard of holiness he's going to say things like i didn't come to abolish the law i actually came to fulfill it as a substitute for you meaning i didn't come to abolish the law meaning everything that i require of you perfect righteousness perfect holiness perfect obedience perfect purity like i know that you're going to fail at that which is exactly why i came i came to actually fulfill those perfect requirements as a substitute for you. So in doing so, he provides this secure foundation from which every single one of us can actually go and pursue his holiness in security and in confidence. Does that make sense? So from here on out, from chapter 5, verse 21, to the end of the chapter, he's going to be giving six examples here, and he's going to be largely calling out the religious elite because there's going to be six um, territories or, or, or areas of our lives that most religious people are going to think that we're pretty good in. 
And then Jesus is going to be kind of twisting it around and being like, yeah, 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 not so fast. My holiness actually requires a lot more that you're not even considering here. So let's jump into it, starting in verse 27. Here's what he says. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your entire body to go into hell. Amen, right? Should we just jump straight to application and just rip this out and just... I'm just right, okay, why are we not all blind amputees? Are you wondering that? Like, <laughs> right, and are you grateful we're kind of not, Right? Can I just make this little qualification up front? He's using hyperbole in order to make his point. Uh, We're not taking this actually literally. The reason we know that is because the original audience he's speaking to, they didn't take it literally in that moment. They didn't come out there and just hack off their hands, gouge out their eyeballs. There was an episode in Grey's Anatomy recently where a kid did that, and it was against the literal interpretation of Scripture and stuff like that. It's not what he's saying right here. He's using hyperbole in order to make this point that you you and I need to do whatever it takes in order to run from sexual sin. That's what he's saying right here. And it's a very similar pattern to what we talked about last week. Verse 22 last week, he said, you've heard it said in the law that you shouldn't commit murder. But here it is again. I'm raising the bar of morality here, and I'm telling you that you shouldn't even get mad enough and call anyone else a fool. Like, it's not just murder and the physical act of murder. Like, don't even think about those thoughts. Don't even entertain the anger inside of your heart and use it to lash out and call someone else a fool. The same thing here in verse 27. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but here it is. Again, I'm raising the bar of morality. My holiness is really, really high here. And I'm telling you, you shouldn't even lust uh, over anyone who's not even your spouse. In other words, like, I'm pumped you haven't actually done the deed. And I'm pumped you actually haven't actually done the physical act of adultery here. But again, like, holiness begins so much further beyond that that it's not even funny. Like, holiness begins in your heart. And the lust that's inside of your heart has the exact same capacity to destroy your life. And so don't even entertain it. Don't flirt with it. Run from it as fast as you possibly can. Like, that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Now, before we get into some of these reasons that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit, the question that I have for you is this. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you that Jesus says, like, don't even flirt with lust and temptation? Is it enough that Jesus says that this is actually sinful before God? Or do we still need more? Because I get that when you're talking to a non-believer, to make the argument, you know what, lust is sinful before God, I get that that's not going to carry much authority with someone who doesn't acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. Or they're not going to acknowledge who he is. So that's not going to carry much authority with them. But like for you who gather every single week and profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you who gather and we sing songs about how glorious and holy and other than that he is. We praise him about his un, uh, uh, unending love, his reckless love for us. And we, we sit there and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Like for you who have said, I've given my life to him and I'm willing to follow him anywhere that he goes. Like, is it enough that Jesus simply called it sin? Because I'll tell you the temptation that I've got for me, because as I'm looking at this passage, it feels kind of like my five-year-old who's always asking me the question, why? You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like, Caleb, stop playing in the street. Why, Daddy? Uh, Caleb, put on your seatbelt. Why, Daddy? Why? Caleb, stop putting the scissors in the outlet. Why, Daddy? Like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. Stop, Caleb, stop, like, throwing the dog on the roof. Why, Daddy? Why, that doesn't make like, Stop, Caleb, like, stop playing with arsenic and this atomic bomb in your hand, right? Why, 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 why? Like at some point it'd be fantastic if he actually trusted what I had to say. Right? 
Like at some point, it'd be fantastic if he actually believed that I loved him and that I wanted what was best for him and that I actually knew how to bring him joy. Like at some point in time, it'd be fantastic if I sat there and I said, Father, I get it. You love me. You're for me. You know what's going on. I'm willing to go wherever it is that you say. Like, church, is it enough for you that Jesus has simply said, this is sinful before God. Run from it as fast as you can. Or do we still need more? Because when Jesus is saying here, uh, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Like, he's not creating arbitrary boundaries for us. Like, he's not a vengeful, spiteful father that hates your guts and wants to steal your joy. Right? Like, that's not what he's doing. He's a loving, heavenly father, and he's speaking to the children that he loves. He's speaking to the bride of Christ, and he's saying, I knew you before you were in your mother's womb. Like, I knit you together right there. I spoke, and the universe was created. I know who you are. I actually love you so much that I sent my one and only son, Jesus, to come and die for you. I love you. I want your joy, and I want you best. Church, I promise you these aren't just arbitrary rules that are meant to be followed. Like, that's what he's saying. Do whatever it takes to run from sexual sin. And it's not just a physical act that he's talking about here. He's saying, like, run from the lust. Run from even thinking about it. Like, run from this idea that you can look, but you can't touch. Like, like, just run from that idea how normative it is today. Like, don't even entertain it. Just flee. Church, I'm telling you, like, Scripture is filled with warning after warning after warning, all going to this exact same end. Like, Abraham and Hagar, Genesis 16. We're still reeling from that decision today. Right? King Solomon, hundreds of foreign wives in a, a divided kingdom. We talked about that this past year. Judah and Tamar, Hosea and Gomer. And, of course, like, the most famous one of them all, David and Bathsheba. Everyone knows that story. We know the fallout. We know the brokenness that comes from this kind of a thing. Like King David was at the height of his reign. Things couldn't have been going better. They were winning everything. Everyone else in the kingdom, all the other men, they were gone. And they were fighting the wars and they were doing their deed. And, and David stays back at the palace one night. He's strolling around on his roof and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And he thinks, hmm, likey, likey. And he thinks about it a little bit more and yada, yada, yada. She gets pregnant. And then all of a sudden, there's a need to cover the whole thing up, and he creates this plot to get him drunk. That doesn't work. He creates another plot to have him killed, and of course, that works. And, and of course, these kinds of things just never go, to way, go away, do they? Like, you can't cover up something like that. Like, it's never actually private. It's never this thing that you can just do and just, hey, it's just firmly in the past, and it, like it's, it, it never for, fully goes away. I mean, even a little bit later on, he goes to the prophet Nathan. And he's having a conversation with Nathan, and he confesses his sin to Nathan. Nathan, here's everything that I did. And Nathan's like, that's fantastic, David. Like, your sins are forgiven. You're actually forgiven by God. But here's the thing. Like, you can't actually unsin. You can't unsin. You can absolutely be forgiven by the grace and the healing of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't actually unsin. Here's the reality. Uriah is still dead. Uriah is still gone. There's still innocent people that, that were caught up in your schemes, and they're still dead. Those children still don't have fathers. Right, like, they're, they're, like there's like these families that are there's, there's still grieving this entire thing. Bathsheba's still pregnant. You're still not married. You still have another family over there, church. Like you can absolutely be forgiven, but you can't actually unsin. Like church, like, like trust is not immediately restored, right? Like your kids, they're not immediately healed from the fallout that took place. Like your spouse doesn't immediately forget what happened. Your mind does not immediately become pure, and all of a sudden, you just, boom, they're gone like you never thought about these things again. Church, you can be forgiven. You can't actually unsin. I mean, with David, like, we're seeing this just massive destruction everywhere we look. And here it is, like, it, it all begins with lust. That's it. 
That tiny little thing that we all thought was innocent, we all thought was normative, it's just what guys do, right? It's just what boys will be boys, it's what we do, everyone's lustful, like we thought it was innocent, we thought it was small, we thought it could stay hidden, and it just never stays hidden. Like that's where it is, he's strolling around on the roof and he sees Bathsheba, and all of a sudden he just begins to think, hmm, hmm." he's dwelling on this a little bit more. And hear me like this, it's more than attraction, right? We're not just talking about being attracted to a bathing woman on another rooftop here. Like, lust is very different from that. The Greek word for lust is epiphemia. It's used actually throughout Scripture a lot of different times, and not always for sexual immorality. It literally means a strong, idolatrous desire for something else. In other words, it's a desire that's warped into sin and taken over to unhealthy extremes. So we're not just talking about attraction. Attraction is very simply um, a, a normative, natural appreciation for the beauty of another, right? Lust is attraction that gets warped over time, becomes a strong sexual desire for someone who's not your spouse. And that's exactly where David went wrong. He's strolling around and he believed the lie that you can look, but you just can't talk, touch. It's a game. It's just no big deal. And so he goes back home and he takes that image and he's just like dwelling on that image of Bathsheba over and over and over again. And it's not just, hey, she's beautiful, but I'm on my way and my eyes are diverted and that kind of a thing. He's just dwelling and he's dwelling and he's dwelling until finally lust conceives and gives way into adultery. And of course, the adultery gives way into this unwanted pregnancy. And the unwanted pregnancy leads to this massive desire to cover up and to cover up for his own pride and his ego and his reputation and things of that nature, which is still killing us today. And then, of course, come the lies, and this plot to get Uriah drunk, and then this plot to have him killed. And then, of course, comes uh, all the different lies. His family implodes. David's daughter ends up getting raped by his son. The other brother decides to kill that brother who did the raping. That brother who's still around is so bitter at David and everything that's taking place. He tries to overcome his kingdom, and, and of course, that leads to that son's death and things like that. Church, we're talking about a massive, massive, massive destruction that all began with a little bit of lust. That's it. It was just, uh, that's all that it was. It's why Hebrews comes along and he says, like, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. We talk about this literally all the time in the church, right? You've heard me quote, like, pretty much weekly. Like, let us encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be deceived by the deceitfulness of your sin that's saying, hey, this is small, this is private, this is no big deal. Right? It's not hurting anybody to dwell on something else. Like, don't believe the deceitfulness of your sin. That this starts out small, and then it has a way of compounding over time. And what it does is it makes you hardened to the things of God, which end up coming out physically all around you today, which is exactly why lust and, and, and envy and things like that, they never stay inside the heart. They always conceive, and lust conceives and gives way to, uh, to frustration and dissatisfaction. Lust never stays inside. Lust gives way to become uh, just unbelievably dissatisfied with the real thing that's there at home. And then, of course, that leads to frustration. Frustration often leads to anger, which can oftentimes lead to abuse or verbal abuse or emotional distance inside the home. And you're sitting there kind of going, okay, I don't know why we don't want to be together. I can't put my fingerprint on it. But meanwhile, that thing down inside there has come outside of your heart and impacted everything that you cared about and loved along the way. Church, it's not harmless. It's not harmless. It's not a little game like it's not. There's no such thing as privacy there. It's not going to hurt anybody, right? Lies. It's never, ever, ever, ever been harmless. There was a book that came out a few years ago called Hooked. It was written by a bunch of non-Christian scientists who wanted to study the effects of pornography or having multiple sexual partners um, on your brains. And they wanted to kind of study what was taking place there and stuff. 
And here's what they found. They said the individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner, even in your mind, is causing the brain to mold in such a way that eventually accepts a sexual pattern as normative, which damages your ability to bond to another person in a committed relationship. In other words, have you ever heard like, hey, it's just casual. It doesn't mean anything. And somehow that's a thing that we celebrate, right? Like, it's, me it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Congratulations. We figured out a way to do it in such a way that the beauty of sex means nothing to the per person you're having it with. And somehow we've called that a beautiful thing, right? Like, the book continues and talks about just the fallout all over the place. Um, the porn addiction is the thing that's leading to more ED. I'll let you figure out what that means. And <laughs> in, in 20-year-old men than anything else. Can I just say, I'm not a doctor. I spent the night at a Holiday Inn one time. I, I'm not a doctor, but like 20-year-old men should not be dealing with that problem, right? They went on to talk about men and women, and it leads to all kinds of things like ADHD and social anxiety, depression, concentration problems, and OCD. Church, here it is. When non-Christian scientists are saying the exact same things that the Word of God has been saying for thousands of years, it's time to pay attention, right? Like when non-Christian scientists are coming along and we're being like, whoa, it's not just harmless, and maybe, like, the Bible's not completely irrelevant and archaic and harmful to other people. Like, maybe it's time we need to start paying attention. Like, there's a TED Talk by Gary Miller, who's a sociologist, again, not a believer. Says this, pornography trains your heart and your mind to objectify the opposite sex, which prohibits you from taking into consideration another person's humanity, and it hurts your ability to interact with the other people on a normal human level. Church, that's what happens when we're looking at it over and over again, it teaches you to stop seeing people as God sees people and to start seeing them as objects that exist for your own gratification. It starts seeing these things as, hey, you exist to serve me instead of, you know what, I'm going to consider you as someone who's more important than myself, which is actually biblical, right? Consider others more important than yourself. Lay down your life for your wife, for her flourishing. Like, love your wife as Christ loved the church and lay down his life for her. Like, so this should be washed with the water of God's word. Like, that's what he's saying, and it's like, all of a sudden, like, this is training you to see other people as objects that exist for your own gratification. It's exactly what happens with David, right? We even see this in the story. We see this happen to David. Um, he's looking out at Bathsheba, and he asks his servant, and he, he says, okay, who's that? Who's that over there, right? And do you remember what the servant says? And the servant comes back, and he's like, you mean Bathsheba? You mean Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, like, David, she's not yours to take. You mean Bathsheba, the one who's got a name. You mean Bathsheba, that human being over there, that female created in the image of God, who has a husband and is a daughter of Eliah over here. Are you kidding me? Like, she's not yours to take. She's not an object that exists for your own gratification or something like that. She's an actual person and a child of God. Church, here it is. Like, when we stop seeing people as God sees people, all bets are off. When we stop seeing people as beautiful image bearers of God, like, all bets are off. The Rwandan genocide, 1994, over a million people killed over a 100-day period, largely Tutsis, Hutus versus Tutsis. Tutsis were mainly killed and wiped out. You know how that began? There's a massive radio campaign that took place months ahead of time where they were training everyone who was listening to call Tutsis cockroaches. That's who they were. Those cockroaches, those cockroaches, that's who they were. They're indescribable insects that you have every right to crush and destroy with your feet. That's who they are. They're not people. I mean, think about this, a slave trade. You ever look back over history and be like, how in the world did an entire nation get this so wrong? Like, how in the world did we ever look at that and be like, hey, that's good. This is good. This is good for humanity and for a culture and for these, for these people. Like, how in the world did we get there? Church, they were three-fifths of a human being. 
They weren't even fully human. They weren't even considered equal. They weren't even a, a man or a woman. They were three-fifths of a human being, like Holocaust. They're dirty Jews. They're not people. The bombing this weekend, it's a dirty Jewish synagogue. They're the problems for everything in the world. Like, they're not human beings. And church, what I'm saying is, when we stop seeing people as God sees people, all bets are off. When we keep seeing our men as players and as, as, and as, uh, and as man whores and sluts and bees and, and a piece of this and a piece of that and whatever the things we want to call out there, like, all bets are off. Like, we'll find a way to justify anything. Michael Cusick says that you can actually see the chemistry in your brain changing uh, whenever you look at pornography. He compares what takes place to this well-worn path in your brain, uh, in, in an overgrown field inside your brain. Here's what he says. Every thought, every feeling, every habit, and every skill uh, in your life has a corresponding neuropathway that fires in your brain. These pathways are designed to function optimally. However, as the brain's reward circuitry gets entangled in a tug-of-war, the brain rewires itself for addiction and new neuropathways are created. Every time a person engages in sexual activity, views pornography, or even thinks about porn, the burst of dopamine strengthens the connections between cells and it creates a brand new pathway that becomes easier to maneuver through over time. Church, like you, that doesn't happen when you're playing chess with your friends. Like that's not, that doesn't happen in a pickup basketball game. Church, it's not a game. It's never, ever been a game. It's never harmless. It's never insignificant. It's never private. It never, it never, it never impacts other people. And he goes on a little bit later on. And he's talking about how it functions much like a glue does. And he calls it a sex glue and how it kind of ties two people intimately together, right? Which explains why it's so difficult to get out of those relationships that you knew you should have gotten out of a long time ago, but you were never able to do. It explains why it's so difficult to, to break apart from toxic relationships before you're engaged in marriage, but you're never able to do it. It's because you're intimately connected to that person, and we can't see what's actually taking place in the context of that relationship. I'll never, um, a good friend of ours allowed me to use her story as much as I wanted to use it. And, um, and uh, anyway, a number of years ago, she was going on marriage three, and she was dating this guy who uh, we could all see. All of her friends were looking at this thing, kind of going, okay, this dude is a schmuck. Right, this guy, he, he abuses, he, he's just, he's horrific in the words that he says, he could care less about you, he's distant, he's all these different kinds of things. Like the relationship was toxic, it was a bad relationship. And it wasn't just us seeing this and being judgmental, it was like everybody else around there kind of going, run from this thing. But the relationship began and it continued to sustain itself because the sex was incredible, is what they said, right? Like the sex was so good, we're gonna keep coming back to it. And meanwhile, she's miserable in the whole thing, can't break the entire thing off. And I remember her sitting in my living room and we were having this conversation. I was explaining a lot of these different things and stuff. And I was like, please, 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 will you just do me a favor? Take one month, a little experience, just one month, no sex for this month. And would you just see what happens? See if you can possibly see anything different. And reluctantly, she decided to do it. She's like, okay, I trust you, we'll do this thing. No sex for a month. At the end of that month, she comes back there and she's like, oh my gosh. What in the world have I been dating? Like, who, I, who is, I don't even recognize this person. Now I see what everything that you've been saying. Church, I, her mind has been polluted by the glue that's taking place there. You're not able to see the realities that are taking place in front of you, which is why it's so damaging outside the context of marriage. Church, you understand, like, what, it, what you know what this means, like, for pe two people that are, that are inside of a marriage? You know what that's called? This is God's gift of intimacy for that marriage. This is a glue that, that he's given to us. It is a good and beautiful gift. Hear me say this. Like this thing that we're talking about here is a good and beautiful gift that has been given to us by God who loves us and wants the best for us. And it is a, it is a gift. We've got entire books written about it. Song of Solomon, it's dirty. 
Right? Like if you're 16, you don't need to be reading it a whole lot without parental advisement, right? Like, like it's, that's, that is a whole book dedicated to the beauty of this relationship between a husband and a wife. It is a good and beautiful gift that God gives to us to use in the context of this committed relationship under the covenant of God, whereby that com- covenant commitment and the thing that's taking place with sex can intimately bond two people like nothing else can. And church, when it's combined in the covenant of marriage and this, in this intimacy thing, like you know what intimacy is? Intimacy is this thing that says, like, I, I, like, there's a billion people in the world today, and none of that matters because you're the one that I want. Like, that's what intimacy says. It says. It says there's a million other people out here, and you're the one that I want to love. You're the one that I've given my life to. I am enthralled with you. My eyes, they are fully reserved for you. My heart is fully reserved for you. My pathways in the brain, they are fully reserved for you and for you alone. Even when it gets tough, like I'm not leaving this thing, my heart's not going to wander. I'm not going to start seeking it out online and things like that for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, until death do us part. I am fully committed to you. And church, here it is. When that covenant is in view, then he has given us this beautiful gift that can help two people glue together in unbelievable joy so that you can not only keep that promise that you made so long ago, but you can actually enjoy one another until death do you part. Church, I'm telling you, like, there's nothing arbitrary about what Jesus is telling us here in this passage. Like, can you imagine for just a second, like, what your relationship would be like today if, like, your neuropathways were reserved for one person instead of being stretched thin by the millions of images and videos and other partners and stuff that we've engaged in for so long? Can you imagine for a second, like what it would be like if all that clutter were gone and there was one neuro pathway with this person that I covenanted before God, my friends, and my family that I was going to love that person until death do us part. Do you think that you'd be experiencing the level of dissatisfaction that you're experiencing today if that were the case? I mean, can we just think about this for a second, church? Like what would happen if today, like God got a hold of your heart And by his grace, you started to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you said, God, by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me, I'm letting go. No more. I'm running from sin. I'm running from sexual sin. No more lust. Right? No more adultery. No more flirting at work. No more affairs. No more trashy sex novels. And none of these. Like, can you imagine if you were to say, God, by your grace, I'm choosing to trust in you that your Holy Spirit would come and do a work inside of me, that there's going to be no more of these things taking place. Can you imagine what your relationship's going to look like a year from now? As he begins to heal those things going on in your brain, going on inside your heart. Like, do you think that he could breathe life into that relationship which you thought was once dead? Can you imagine what that's going to look like two years from now, walking in victory? Three years from now, walking in victory. Oh my gosh. Singles, let me ask you this, like, like, can you imagine what it would be like if you're not constantly gluing yourself to other people that aren't committed to you, and then ripping apart over and over and over again? It hurts. Can you imagine the conversation that might take place years from now if marriage is a thing in the future that you're going after and so Can you imagine that conversation of a partner that's coming back and saying, you know what, like the reality of my life, my high school years, my college years, yeah, it was the normal. I was a statistic. I, that, that was my life. Multiple part, many different things going on here. And can you imagine the conversation that says, but you know what, October 28th, 2018, God got a hold of my affections. And I actually began to believe what he said was true. And I began to trust that he knew me and that he loved me and he wanted the best for my life. And I came to him in honesty and humility and I said, Lord, would you bring this healing into my life? 
and he healed me beginning that day, and it was a slow and steady progress. But here's the reality. For the past year, like I've been saving myself for you. For the past year, I've been training to be faithful. Like I've been, I've been faithfully committed to you long before we ever met. Can you imagine that kind of conversation? Because I promise you, that is a conversation every one of us want to hear. You may be sitting here kind of going, prude, boring, yeah, right. I promise you there's not a person in this room that would not love to hear that from their spouse. Long ago, whatever that date was, he began purifying me. And he began changing me from the inside out. And from that day forward, I started saving myself exclusively for you. You can trust me when I'm away on my, on my business trip because I've been faithfully committed to you for a really, really long time. Church, can you imagine being a single and actually knowing what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, it can actually be better for you to remain single because then you would know the joy of being fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand this? Like Christianity is one of these weird things where he amplifies being single. It's not just marriage. He amplifies being single here, and he says, it could actually be better for you, which is exactly why Paul was single. It could actually be better for you to remain single, because then you're going to know the, un, uh, you're gonna know the beautiful joy of being fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, I'm telling you, he knows what he's doing. Like, it's, it's not just arbitrary things that he's throwing at you to kill your joy. He's not an idiot. That's why he goes, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm glad you haven't taken the plunge. And I'm glad you haven't actually gone that far with it and stuff, but here it is, like, holiness begins in your heart, church. And the lust that's there in your heart that you think is no big deal, it's actually an enormous deal. And it's going to erupt. And it's already corroding your heart and your affections to the things of God, but it's actually an enormous deal. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take it seriously, and I want you to run from it. Run, run, run as fast as you possibly can. I want to talk for a few minutes on what that actually looks like. The practicalities of what it looks like to run, because if the stats are true, then every single one of us are kind of going, whoa, that was an enormously heavy past 30 minutes, right? So, oh my gosh. It's hitting us. There's guilt, there's conviction. What does it look like if, by God's grace, you're coming in here, you're going, you know what? I actually believe that what Jesus is saying here is actually true, and I believe it's good, and I believe it's for my good and for his glory at the exact same time. If that's you, first thing we've got to do is you've got to admit that there's a problem. You've got to be willing to ask for help. Church, we've got to be a people that are, that are willing to admit that there's a problem and willing to ask for help, right? It's, it, it, it's exactly what we talked about this past week, Psalm 25, 9. He guides the humble in what's right, and he teaches them his way. He guides the humble in what's right, and he teaches them his way. In other words, he's not guiding the proud that is unwilling to admit that there's a problem. He's not guiding the people that think, you know what, I've got this whole thing figured out. Like the Bible's wrong, Jesus is wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? He's not guiding the proud, he's guiding the humble and is willing to teach them his way. It's the person who's willing to say, you know what, Lord, by your grace, I need you to come and to bring healing today because what I've done, what I've engaged in, not just this past week, but for the past number of years, all throughout college, all throughout young adult life, all throughout high school years, like all of those things are sinful before you. It's what they are. God, they're not just mistakes that I made. Like, they're decisions and choices that I made. And I wasn't believing you. It's a problem. And would you come and would you bring hope? Would you come and bring restoration? Would you come and bring healing inside of my life that I could be set free from these things for the rest of my days? And beyond that, like, once you go and you have that prayerful conversation with the Lord, asking his spirit to do in you what you can't do for yourself, you go and you talk to a friend. Maybe it's a youth pastor. Maybe it's another friend. Maybe it's a, a, a best friend, a small group, or something like that. But you talk to them, and you ask them for help. Will you keep me accountable? Can we talk about these things? 
Because you're making the decision that, you know what, victory is not going to be won in the privacy of my heart. Victory is going to be won when I bring these things to the open and I'm honestly dealing with the truth instead of living in hypocrisy, hoping that it goes away. And it's saying, you know what, I'm going to bring these things and I need your help. Church, this is why we do freedom prayer. You've heard us talk about this a lot. This is why we offer freedom prayer. And for some of you, the only application you need to hear is that immediately after the service, you go out in the back and you sign up. You write your name on a card, you give it to a box, you talk with one of us, and you say, I want to engage in freedom prayer. Freedom prayer is not just a small gathering of people that come together to pray about a few things. Freedom prayer is, um, it is anonymous, right? This is, there's there's, there's uh, confidentiality at play a trusted leadership team, a few people that, that you'll meet with outside of church throughout the week at a time that works for you. And you're going to come and you're going to, it'll take maybe an hour, maybe take a little bit longer than that. And you're going to talk about real things. And you're going to expose some real things that are going on inside your heart. And nothing, none of that's going to go outside of that group. And you're going to start praying and they're going to be intervening on your behalf. And they're going to start trusting God. And these people have been trained, they've got wisdom and discernment to be able to come in and to bring life to your soul that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can bring freedom once again to your life. And for some of you, the thing that you need to hear is an immediate as I leave this place, I need to reach out to that team, get online, talk to whoever I need to talk to, and engage in freedom prayer that the Holy Spirit can come and set you free from the addictions that you've been living in for so long. The second thing we've got to do is we've got to go to extreme measures. We've got to remove all obstacles in our life. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? If you take nothing else from these verses, and he's saying go to extreme measures to remove these obstacles. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's pretty extreme. If, you, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Again, using hyperbole to make this, 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 this truth come alive. Do whatever it takes to run from sin. Do whatever it takes to remove the obstacles that you keep coming back to over and over and over again. Church, hear me on this. It is not legalistic to take your sin seriously. If I hear that anymore from the church, I just stopped doing these borders. I stopped doing my quiet time. I was getting legalistic about it, whatever. That's not legalism. Stop using that excuse. Legalism is very specifically trusting in your discipline or your righteous deeds as some sort of your own sense of getting a sense of righteousness from those things, recognizing that Christ died for your righteousness. Right? That's what legalism is. It's trusting in myself, these different things, for a sense of righteousness, which you were never intended to, to do. And so you need to take very extreme measures. For some of us, that means we're going to go home and put Covenant Eyes or Triple X Church, one of these accountability softwares on your computer that are going to send reports to someone that you know and trust, and they're going to hold you accountable to these things. For some of you, this means that you're going to meet re regularly with an accountability partner. You're going to do freedom prayer. It may mean that you need to get rid of your smartphone and go back to archaic flip phones and stuff like that because the privacy and allure of that thing is just way too enticing. For some of you, it means you may need to get rid of your laptop, the mobility that that provides. It may mean that you need to give your spouse access to your passwords and say, babe, anytime you have questions, come and check my computer. You can check it out. There'll be a whole lot of stuff about the Florida Gators on there, but nothing else. <laughs> Years ago, Chuck Swindoll came to chapel at, at DTS, and uh, it was a time when one of the pastors was uh, in town, got caught in adultery. It was a big scandal and stuff, and he came and just ripped on all the students. I mean, just unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, just a warning, warning, warning. We went back to the class that afternoon, and one of the profs made us do this assignment. He said, I want you to write a letter to yourself detailing out all the fallout that would take place if you continue to engage your lust and it ever gave way to adultery. Write this letter. Keep it in front of you. Keep it in your Bible. Keep it in your, on your uh, desk, on your computer. And I remember writing out that thing, and I still have it today. I keep it in my office, but I wrote down, I destroyed my relationship with Kat. 
it, if, she, if it survived and she gave me another chance, the joy and intimacy we once had, it would be damaged and she'd have a really, really hard time trusting me again. She'd be grieving for a really long time. She'd feel unloved, not pretty, never, ever, ever good enough to compete with what's going on online. She'd probably have a really hard time moving past that insecurity. I could possibly tear my family apart and lose my relationship with Caleb. I'd absolutely lose the right to show him what a faithful, loving husband could look like in a world that needs examples of faithful, loving husbands. I'd lose my job and bring embarrassment to Dallas Bible Church. I'd keep a lot of people from ever trusting Christian leaders again. I'd contribute to a growing list of pastors and Christian leaders who forfeited their ministries in pursuit of fleeting pleasures. But the greatest offense of them all is that I'd be sinning against a holy God who loved me in the middle of that place. Church, hear me on this. All of these things that we're talking about, none of them compare to the fact that we are running in rebellion against a holy God who has loved us first and foremost. He'd forgive me, but there'd still be fallout and a whole lot of time missed from walking in purity with him over the years. Church, whatever it does, whatever it takes to keep you from these temptations, do it is what Jesus is saying. If it takes cutting out an eyeball, don't literally do that, but do it. Cut off a head, do what it takes to keep these temptations because I promise you it's not harmless. Last thing you need to hear is this. Do not, do not, do not ever, ever, ever let shame win. Do not let shame win. Can you say that with me? Do not let shame win. I cannot tell you how many people today have given up on the pursuit of purity simply because of the weightiness of their past. And the thought process goes something like this. Well, I've already done the deed. Like, I've already gone this far. I've already done all of these things. Like, my baggage is so big, what does it matter anymore? And so the thought is, like, there's no hope. There's no reconciliation. There's no ability for God to heal. There's no, there's no, there's no, no value to pursuing purity from here on out. Church, don't ever, ever, ever let shame win because Jesus came to make sure that shame would not win in your life. Years ago, Matt Chandler told a story that reminded me of something that happened back in high school. But back in my day, in our youth group time, like we would always do these things called True Love Waits conferences. And they were good. I think they were well-intended. And I think there's a lot of massive fallout that came from a lot of these things. But uh, basically, you'd get the whole youth group together. There'd be a speaker. And I uh, remember what happened one night. We were there, and the speaker was giving the talk. And, and uh, he brought out a rose. And he says, I want you to take this rose. He goes, look at this rose. I want you guys to take this thing, and I want you to pass it around out there. And so they took this. It was a clean rose at the time. And and he passed it around, and there's a couple hundred people there, and they're passing it, and he goes, I want you to touch the petals, I want you to touch the leaves, I want you to feel it, and, and, and all these different kinds of things. And he goes on preaching about how pretty much you're going to get an STD and die or something like that if you continue to engage. It's fear-mongering and, and things of that nature only. And so he wraps things up, and he calls for the rose back on stage, and he holds it up, and he just gets there, and he says, I want you to look at this rose. This is what your sexual immorality does to you. Who in the world would ever want this rose? Like, take a look at this one right here. Like, which rose are you going to pick? And I remember listening to that example and looking around the room that night and I remember look, looking at one of my friends and her head was kind of be, between her knees and and she's just, she's just down there on her knees, just kind of rocking back and forth. And I'm looking around the room, and some people are like, yeah, 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 let's do it. And then other people just absolutely crushed and destroyed. 
I remember looking around and kind of feeling like, oh, like this isn't the whole story, right? Like, where in the world is the hope in this message? Because, church, the reality of the gospel is that Jesus wants the rose. That's the hope of the gospel. The reality of the gospel is even this thing with this thing just falls off. <laughs> right? Like, Jesus bled and he died for this rose. That's the beauty of the gospel. And the beauty of the gospel is that it's not just sexual offenses that bring us to that state. The gospel says that we're all lost and dead in our sins. Like, we're all damaged goods before a holy God. But the reality is that in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. He didn't come to abolish the law, church. He came to fulfill the law, knowing that you and I were going to fail at it, knowing that you and I were going to make mistakes, knowing that you and I were going to run in rebellion. And in the middle of that place, he still sent his son, Jesus. And he sent his son, Jesus, not to give us a bunch of rules and regulations, but to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So that even though we are broken roses, Jesus came and he loved the rose. He bled and he died for the rose. It's why Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, Don't you know that the, that the wicked won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, such were some of you. It's who you were. Like that was the label that defined who you are. But now that you're in Christ, you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You've been sanctified and you've been called holy by him. You've been declared righteous. You've been justified by his blood and you've been called righteous. Not because you are, not because your track record's perfect but because Christ is, and that's exactly what he's given to you in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. I'll never forget what Greg Mott had to say years ago at Breakaway. He was doing the sex talk, and he knew exactly where it was going to leave so many people feeling. He goes, never, ever, ever, ever forget this. Some of the most godly and fruitful people today are some of the most forgiven. Some of the most godly and fruitful people today are some of the most forgiven people you'll ever meet. Church, don't ever forget that. Don't ever, ever, ever forget that. The reality is, like, some of us are at this place where you need to hear the front part of this message. You need to know and you need to remember, you know what, this is dangerous. He's not just being arbitrary in these rules. And you need to hear what Jesus is saying. And you need to run as fast as you possibly can. You need to sign up for pre freedom prayer. You need to get the accountability software. And you need to do whatever it takes to run as fast as you possibly can. Other people need to hear that you're not done. Others of you need to hear that it's not over for you. That in Christ you can be washed. You can be sanctified and you can be justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In October 28, 2018. You can begin walking in purity. He can start healing you today. You can be set free. And you can know what the transformed life looks like. These pathways that are reserved for one. God can come and he can breathe life into your marriage again. He can restore broken intimacy. He can give hope to the hopeless. Father, we worship you.